Welcome to episode 219 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And today, as promised in our earlier uh, uh, news roundup, I'm going to be interviewing Nick Bilton, author of American Kingpin, the epic hunt for the criminal mastermind behind the Silk Road. Uh, Nick uh, has written a couple of Good books in technology. This is one of them. Uh, Hatching Twitter uh, is another. Uh, he, he has brought real narrative drive to all of the things that he's written. Uh, so I'm really pleased that he's uh, on the show. Uh, he is a special correspondent for Vanity Fair, where he writes about technology, politics, business, and culture and a contributor to CNBC, former columnist for the New York Times. Nick, welcome. Thanks for having me so much. I really appreciate it. No, I, it was a great book. Uh, why don't you tell us what it's about? So um, <clears throat> the book is about uh, this guy. His name is Roth Albrecht, and he was your typical straight-A student in school, uh, 1600 on his SAT, you know, uh, incredibly bright, grew up in Austin, Texas, uh, but also grew up in a household where um, he, you know, was raised in, with the philosophy of libertarian politics, if you will. And the idea was that uh, people shouldn't be able, shouldn't be told what the government, uh, the government shouldn't tell people what they can and cannot do with their lives and their bodies and their homes and so on. And that um, and that was the philosophy he kind of grew up with. Uh, and when so now we, we – this means – let me just stop. This means we yeah. are now on our second generation of libertarians. You know, uh, when the communists had kids and raised them as, as communists, we called them red diaper babies. What do you call a second generation libertarian? Well, I think the difference between uh, the, the first generation and the second generation is the second generation has computers, uh, and that gives them a whole lot of power. Uh, you know, if you look in Silicon Valley, uh, they're all libertarians. Uh, Peter Thiel is a libertarian and has the same philosophy. Uber was started with the same philosophy by Travis Kalanick. It is a, a it's a, a theme in the Valley of this idea that no one should be able to tell you what you can and cannot do with yourself and your property. Um, and it was the theme that that led me to write this book. And so Ross Ulbricht, um, who's the guy that that uh, is the central character in the book. He decided that drugs should be legal, um, and he believed that the government should not be able to tell you that you cannot put something in your body and that it's your personal God-given right. And so he started this website called the Silk Road, um, uh, taken from the name of the Chinese you know, Silk Road. And he, uh, using Tor, which is the, the web browser that allows you to be completely anonymous, which is the, the side of the Internet that is called the dark web, um, to be able to buy and sell things, and then using Bitcoin, which which was uh, what we believed at the time was anonymous, to be able to, to actually do the transactions. He built this website, and um, and you could buy and sell drugs. Um, and, uh, and he didn't think that when he first started it, he was in Austin, Texas, he didn't think that it was going to be that big of a deal. He thought maybe a few people would use it, and it'd be a good experiment. And, um, and something happened about six months in where it got picked up in the media. And from that moment on, it just exploded. And he went from making a few dollars a week to hundreds of dollars a week to, to hundreds of thousands of dollars a week. Um, and, uh, and the law enforcement, of course, 
had never seen anything like this before, and they had to figure out how they could how they could capture this stuff. So uh, let me. Uh, the, the, this is interesting. I, your your focus on his libertarianism as as the motivating force. Uh, is interesting because he started out thinking, well, you know, drugs you put in your body, it's your business. Uh, and then he faced a series of questions about what are we going to let people sell on this site? And if I remember right, uh, uh, some of the questions he got were, well, what about cyanide? That's a drug you could put in your body to kill yourself or your friends. Uh, and he finally says, yeah, it's a drug, sure. Uh, and how about kidneys? Can we sell kidneys? Uh, and I I think he said yes, and if I remember right, he ended up trying to procure hits, you know, online uh, murders of people online. Uh, um, uh, there's a, uh, you know, if you're looking at this about what's the evolution of libertarianism, there's a dark uh, story to be told. Well, that's that's exactly what happened. So, you know, the libertarian philosophy that he ascribed to it was one that that was that was all or nothing. Uh, which is often the case. And so, you know, it wasn't just, oh, well, people should be allowed to smoke weed or, or, or eat magic mushrooms um, or maybe take, you know, psychedelic drugs or whatever it is, um, and the government shouldn't be able to tell you what to do. The, his philosophy was the government should not be able to tell you what to do, period. And, uh, and so he believed that if you want to take heroin, that you should be able to take heroin, that if you wanted to own a gun at four years old, you should be able to. Um, there were no rules around the the, the, the world that he, he created. And, and eventually what happens is not only are there thousands of different types of drugs that are being sold on here, things that are being made in Chinese laboratories um, and being sold, including fentanyl, which has, of course, led to the opioid epidemic. Um, there are guns. There are other weapons. There are dr- uh, drug-making kits and laboratories. Uh, and then, of course, he starts to get into the things that you mentioned. There's a moment where someone comes to the site and says, hey, I want to sell cyanide. And uh, and Ross's belief is if you want to end your life, you should be able to end your life. And so he says, okay, we'll allow, allow it. And then someone comes to the site and said, can we sell body parts? You know, you, right now you have to go through the hospitals to get them, and there's these rules. And we could sell them on the black market. And the craziest part about the potty part conversation is that, that he has is that he comes to realize that, you know, selling bone marrow, you can make uh, 800% more than you can selling the most expensive drugs in the world. And, and so he says that he will allow that too. And, and it, it oh, I, I, as I remember, how, he, he says, well, as long as you reassure me that it's consensual, yeah. as, as as if you could tell yeah, from the kidney uh, whether it was consensual or not. Uh, yeah, that was that was a, yeah, a, a sad. Yeah, it's, it, that was the, the great line. Yeah, I forgot about that. Where he says, um, is, is, "If it's consensual, then it's okay." And it's like, well, how do you even know where it came from? It, it could somebody could have been murdered, and they could have taken you know those body parts, and that's how they're selling them. But it was. Um, you know, it's amazing because it went from it went from this little idea to this massive thing uh, that was making hundreds of millions of dollars, um, and uh, and he was just the, he was the decider, and as far as he was concerned, everything went. So he he he's doing this, and the cops are closing in. I want to come back and talk about the cops because I actually found them much more compelling characters than Ulbricht, who's you know a, you know, a bit of a stiff. Um, a Tell us how how this ended, because this was a pretty cinematic description of 
his arrest, uh, not surprisingly because you had a bunch of uh, videotapes of it, uh, but uh, what is the what is the constraint as the police are closing in on them? What are they trying to do and how do they do it? Well, there's two problems. One is in the beginning of the of the case. Um, uh, the first is that they've never the cops have never done a case like this before. They've never had an incident where they're trying to arrest someone for buying and selling drugs and guns and all these things on the internet through the dark web. And so, um, so you have the DEA who's, who's, who comes after the case, and and it turns out they don't have jurisdiction to do cyber cases. Then you have the FBI that's trying to come after the case, and it turns out they don't have jurisdiction to do drug cases. And then you have the Department of Homeland Security, and it turns out, well, they have to partner with the DEA or the FBI or the IRS. And you've got all these different groups coming after it, and none of them have the power to be able to do the thing that they need to do. And so they had to kind of figure out ways to work together, and, of course, none of them did that well. But when they finally figure out who Roth is, and the drama around that is just a fascinating part of the story, but they have to arrest him, and they have to do it with his fingers on the keyboard because there's no other proof to say that it's essentially like him flushing the drugs down the toilet. There's no proof that it was him. So they have to go through this, this very elaborate thing where they have to somehow get him on on the dark web, on the Silk Road, logged in as the, as the Dread Pirate Roberts, which was Ross's alter ego on, online. And they have, to, they have to catch him like that. And, um, and they have this guy, Jared Yegan, who's an HSI agent who ends up going undercover and working on the website. They have um, these other guys, this, this DEA agent and a Secret Service agent who, who literally go rogue and start legitimately working for him and stealing money. But they're dealing with all these things, and eventually they, they, they set up a, um, a sting operation where they manage to get him in a library. And it's, uh, as you said, it's incredibly cinematic and terrifying, and all they need to do is get him with his fingers on the keyboard. So they they spot him. They put a uh, woman across the table from him who looks completely uh, uh, innocuous, and then they start a fight just behind him. So he turns around, and she just leans over while he's got his fingers uh, while he's taking his fingers for a second off of the keyboard and pulls the laptop over to her. He grabs for it, and they grab him, and he's done. He's uh, let me go back to the to the story of how they got to that point, because uh, um, these characters that you have uh, uh, talked about are uh, the the cops are so typical of their agencies in some respects. Uh, um, there's the Homeland Security investigator uh, 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 Jared Deryagin. Is that how you pronounce his name? Um, yep, who's, Deryagin, yeah. whose dad is a federal judge and who used to run CBP, apparently, at one point. Uh, um, yep. And he comes into work and he's got, he finds one pill and decides that he's going to figure out and fi- finally figures out that it's being sold on the, uh, the uh, uh, Silk Road. And he decides he wants to break this case. He's a brand new agent. Everybody says, are you kidding? One pill? We do not care. Bring us a thousand. We might prosecute. And he said, no, this is a big deal. Um, what does he do to um, contribute to this um, overall law enforcement effort? Well, so, yeah, as you said, you know, this case all started with one single pill. And the thing that I find so fascinating when I was doing the reporting for the book, you know, I went to all these agencies. I saw the way that the, the whole system works and and. 
as you know, in the mail systems, when all the mail comes in from all over the world, it goes on these conveyor belts and into these, um, and it goes through the, the the mail inspectors. And there's no dogs and you know and fancy computer equipment that's checking to see if there's drugs inside. It's just these guys, you know, following their gut. And one guy sees this envelope and thinks, oh, that looks a little weird. It's handwritten or it's typed actually. It's a small envelope, which is kind of a giveaway. And he cuts it open, and there's a tiny little pink pill. And he calls he lit, he calls the the HSI office, and the, the the officer on duty that day in the airport, Chicago airport, was Jared. And it was just a, a all a matter of chance. And of course, Jared sees this and thinks there has to be a reason someone selling sending someone one single pill. Uh, and everyone else thinks he's insane. Uh, and he's he's not he's convinced, and he was right. And he um, he starts you know doing his typical you know knock and talks and. The, all the stuff you do as an agent, and um, eventually discovers that this thing called the Silk Road exists, and um, and then he has to try to figure out how he can go after it. And so he starts doing undercover buys where he's buying stuff and and seeing what they can catch and if they can start to put together profiles. Um, and so he takes a very traditional kind of investigative route. At the same time, you have another guy uh, in Chicago, um, this DEA agent called Carl Force who had been in trouble before the DEA for, you know, DUIs and, and getting a little too into his cases and, and doing drugs and things like that, who decides he's going to come after this case because he hears about it. Um, and immediately the dynamic between the two sets up where it's, it's the DEA versus, versus the HSI. And that's the way the case goes for a good year before, um, before they finally, um, uh, the site is getting so much attention growing so quickly that the FBI has to get involved. So Carl Force is a fascinating character to my mind and and and, and Completely plays, fascinating. Play, plays, yeah. to, <laughs> plays to the stereotypes of DEA agents. He's a, he's a little loose, uh, deeply dis, uh, 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 disenchanted with uh, his role, uh, loves going undercover, won't share with anybody else. These are my cases and by God, I'm going to get the credit. Uh, uh, and you know, also, just like Ulbricht, ends up kind of succumbing to the charm of being able to do things completely anonymous, uh, anonymously and um, uh, starts uh, uh, going to the dark side. Yeah, he, uh, you know, Carl, I think, the, 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 Carl is not the only cop that goes to the dark side. There's another guy, Sean Bridges, from the Secret Service, who I'll get to in a second. The Secret Service guy, I think, legitimately was just a bad guy. Um, I think from Carl's perspective... He was a family guy who lived in Baltimore. He had bought a house that he couldn't, you know, was having trouble making repairs on. He was, he, it was the end of his career and he had always thought, I, I'll be some big bad guy that will, a big, you know, big bad agent that will catch all the bad guys and I'll be lauded for it. And, and he, that hadn't happened. And, and, um, he, you know, he would clock in at 10 a.m. and leave at 2 p.m. and take lunch in between. And, and I think he saw this opportunity to be someone that was going to catch someone uh, that was changing the way drugs were sold in, in the world. And, and he got sucked in harder than he could ever imagine. And he um, he ends up going undercover online and, and realizes, oh, well, there's this thing called Bitcoin that I could actually get some of it uh, while I'm doing this undercover work. And so he starts creating all these fake personas and he starts selling information to, to the Dread Pirate Roberts about the case. He starts creating other personas where he's threatening to out him. He's just trying anything he can, and in the process ends up pulling in 
seven eight hundred thousand dollars in Bitcoin that he's then selling, uh, and he's still working the case at the same time. And he just got he got so involved in it that he started to lose track of who was who from all these different personalities he had. And there's one amazing moment where he's undercover as this. He's pretending that he's an undercover. Sorry, not an undercover. He's pretending he's a drug dealer who moves $25 million of drugs through South America, through Europe to America, and he's trying to do a big drug deal with the drug pirate Robert so he can catch him. And he accidentally signs his message to the drug pirate Roberts as Carl, and his name is Carl. So then he has to follow up, and he quickly sends another one. He says, my, I meant Carlita. My name is Carlita. Like, he, he was just so – it just had no idea what he was doing and got in way over his head. It's like it's like uh, deleting the tweet and then announcing that your Twitter account has been hacked. Uh, it, it, exactly, it's n- never yeah, persuasive. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, you know, so he went bad in a way that you expect a DEA agent to go bad, right? Uh, he goes undercover yeah. and loses track of whether he's um, a cop or not. Uh, the Secret Service guy sort of went bad in a way I'd kind of expect a Secret Service guy to go bad. Uh, uh, <laughs> much more high tech. Uh, um, you know, uh, I, tell me how he ended up uh, um, uh, taking advantage of the Silk Road to uh, 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 to move to the dark side. Well, so there's this one moment in the case that uh, you, you really have to read to kind of really appreciate the nuance of it. But there's a guy who works for the Dread Pirate Roberts, and he um, <clears throat> and he agrees to do a a drug deal. He agrees to be the middleman. For a kilo of cocaine, and the kilo of cocaine gets dropped off his house, and it turns out that the guy buying the kilo of cocaine is actually that DEA agent Carl Forth, and he's partnered up with the Secret Service agent Sean Bridges um, and a bunch of other people, a guy from the Postal Service, and so on. And uh, so they, the the guy, this middleman, um, uh, who, who is a, an also a bizarre character. He has two chihuahuas and a pink cane and wears a fanny pack filled with cash and lives in Utah. So they, 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 they do this control drop of the, of the kilo of coke and they arrest him. And it turns out that he's a, this guy's an administrator for, for the site, um, and, um, for the Silk Road website. And in the middle of the interrogation, Sean Bridges gets access, to, makes him give him access to his computer. And Sean Bridges realizes pretty quickly that as the administrator on the Silk Road, you can actually go into other people's accounts, users on the site, and you can take their Bitcoin. Uh, and so he does this, and he ends up pulling out about $350,000 in the middle of the investigation while the cops are searching his house, uh, while the, this guy's being interrogated. The Dread Pirate Roberts finds out about this, Ross Ulbricht, and thinks that that one of his employees has turned to the cops and stolen $350,000 in the process. So he orders, he wants to put a hit out to have this guy killed. And he thinks, this is where it starts to get confusing, he thinks that he's going to hire this South American drug dealer to do the hit, but he turns out he's hiring Carl Force, the DEA agent. Well, which is handy because Carl Force actually knows where he can reach this, uh, find this guy because he just arrested him. (laughs) So they, exactly. So so it's so funny the way that that the actions of Sean and Carl are making the Dread Pirate Roberts make this decision to hire Sean and Carl to do the thing that they're about to do. So there's a moment uh, um, where they go to this Marriott hotel and they take this guy who uh, they have just arrested and they fake torture him, but they actually really torture him. They get a little too carried away with him and they, they're drowning him in a bathtub and 
they're taking video, which they're sending of, of his dead body and photos to the Dread Pirate Roberts so they can get paid for it. And at the same time, Sean Bridges is in the other room on the computer stealing all this money. That's hilarious. Oh, it, it's it's spectacular yeah. right, uh, moment. And and I, I assume you you have uh, sold the rights to this to Hollywood and are uh, we're going to see a movie of this. Uh, yeah, we, the rights were sold uh, to Fox, and uh, the Coen brothers wrote a draft of the script, and Steve Zalian, who um, is just an incredible screenwriter, um, has done a rewrite of that, and, and they're currently trying to figure out what the next step is with it. But it's uh, it's just such an incredible story. It's, it's hard yeah. to believe. So I don't want to quit. You know, before, the, the, I, I don't want to quit without talking about the... the um, agent that I thought was actually the most interesting of all of these, which is Gary Alford. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. he's, he's an IRS guy, uh, but um, in in many ways, the key to the case. So, yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think the key to the case was everyone working together. I think, you know, I've covered stories, cases, startup companies, you name it. And, I, and there's, there's always, there's always someone that kind of pulls all the pieces together at the end, but I think, you know, they stand on the shoulder of all the people that contributed to it, and and it's something I've always seen, and um, Gary Alford, I think, was, you know, everyone loves Gary. He's an amazing uh, uh, character in the story. He is an IRS agent um, who ends up in the criminal division of the IRS, uh, and he's really good at kind of figuring out things, pulling things together that you wouldn't normally see, and Gary is... um, he was born born in New York uh, in uh, 1977, and it was the year of the Son of Sam, and it was also the year of the blackout. Uh, and the reason this is relevant um, is because when he was born, um, the Son of Sam was was you know terror, terrorizing New York, and he always heard about it when he was older about how what was going on that year, and he always remembered that the way they caught the Son of Sam was through a parking ticket. And what had happened was. There was no. They, the son of Sam had murdered all these people and, people and raped women and so on and so forth. And and they the the task force that they had put together, not too sim- dissimilar to the task force to try to figure out who the Dread Pirate Roberts was, had not been able to find anything until one cop says, "Wait a second, this guy. Some of these 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 houses this guy is attacking are nowhere near a subway, so therefore he must be driving. And there's a chance that he is parking somewhere." at a meter and not, I, I wouldn't imagine you're in the middle of a murder and you go pay the meter and come back. So there's a chance that he gets a parking ticket. So let's look and see if there's any cars that got parking tickets in the vicinity of these murders when they've happened. And it turns out there was a, there was a car that had gotten them and they went to the guy's house. He opens the door. It's the son of Sam. He says, what took you so long? And that's it. So Gary, when he approaches this case, the Silk Road case, knowing the people before him have had no luck, he figures there has to be a parking ticket somewhere on the internet, uh, and he's determined to find it. And Gary's a really interesting character because he has these quirks that make him really stand out. For example, he reads everything three times, uh, and every email, every magazine article, every book, he reads everything three times because he believes that if you read it three times, you're going to retain more information about it. And so he starts going through all this information, um, all these reports, all these blog posts, everything he can, and eventually... He comes across the first thing ever written on the Internet um, about the Silk Road, and he figures out that, it, that there was a guy who had written this first thing. It was a forum post, and his name was Ross Ulbricht. Uh, and eventually, with that, with the FBI, with Duryagan undercover and all these people, 
um, it all came together uh, into that moment when Ross shows up at the public library. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was great. I, I I have to say, you know, when I, I read it uh, uh, in preparation for for talking to you with the second time, I thought, God, really, Google is the is the key to this uh, because I know, it yeah, was yeah, a yeah, Google yeah. search where he basically used the, the the time framing of Google searches to, to to look for references to the Silk Road and before the Gawker article, and there weren't many, and that's how he found found it. And then when they were trying to decide Decide if this was just you know some guy or not. They got his address and they put it into Google Maps and said, "Wait a minute, that's right around the corner from the coffee shop that a lot of the Dread Pirate, Pirate Roberts communications have come from." Uh, and that's when they said, "Okay, we got the guy." Uh, so uh, these are uh, this is an investigation that at least couldn't have succeeded this way without uh, a lot of Google tools. Yeah, it's it's really it's um it's really fascinating the way that uh, uh the way that the traditional things that we use every day became the things that, that brought them down. It was email and text messages and photos and Google and uh, and Facebook and all those things. Um, and uh, you know, and to, to to come back to the end of this, I mean, what's fascinating is that Ross's defense in court um, uh, was. Uh, he he didn't take the libertarian defense that you would imagine that he would say oh well I believe this and this is what happened. Um, he tried to uh, he tried to point out that the Dread Pirate Roberts the the way he got his name was um, from the Princess Bride movie um, and he pointed out that there were multiple Dread Pirate Roberts and that he he had yes he had started the site but he had sold it to someone else and it wasn't him uh, and of course that didn't that didn't work out. That, that that has to be the most overrated movie uh, in, of this generation. Uh, uh, I love that movie. Oh, it's great. <laughs> yes, I know. I think I, you know, I saw it long after it had become a classic, and I have to say, I was really disappointed. Uh, but I'm going to get hate mail over that one. Uh, uh, so these guys no, are no, all no. in jail. Ulbricht is in jail for life, uh, and yep. uh, uh, the two rogue agents are in jail until sometime in the 2020s. Yeah, so Albrecht, um, Albrecht was given a plea. You know, when he got caught, he was caught with his hands on the computer and uh, tens of millions of dollars of Bitcoin on his laptop. He was logged in as the only person that could log into the site, which was, was the Dread Pirate Roberts, the creator of it. Um, and um, he had thumb drives on his computer, I mean, on his desk at home, on his midnight stable with backups of the Silk Road. He had pieces of paper in his um, garbage can of like notes about architecture for the website, you know, everything lined up completely perfectly. Uh, and, you know, and he, he was given an opportunity. They said, look, we know, we know it's you. We got you. There's nothing you can do to kind of get out of this. And, um, and Ulbricht had gotten away with this for a couple of years. And it was hubris that I think really led him to where he ended up today. Cause they said, look, we'll offer you a plea deal. The plea deal will be, you know, 10 to life. And, and, uh, you know, and he, um, he just turned it down. He said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to fight this. Uh, and, and they said, if you fight this, we're going to hit you with the kingpin charge. And the kingpin charge, as you know, is, is the, it's the same thing they got Gotti with. It's that you ran a, a criminal enterprise with five or more employees and it's 20 to life for that. And, um, uh, 20 minimum. And, and so they just threw everything at him and the defense he had, I think was, um, it was pretty bad, in my opinion. Um, he uh, he said that while he was on the the 
computer in the library that hackers had 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 gotten into his computer and put all the information on there, um, uh, which is just complete nonsense. Um, uh, and um, and that he was framed, and that the real Red Pirate Rovers was out there. And the jury spent three hours deliberating um, and came back with all guilty charges. And he ended up with two life sentences um, plus, I think, twenty or forty years or something. Um, and he's now in a maximum security prison in um, uh, ADX. Um, and um, he in Pennsylvania, uh, and um, and then the other guys, the cops eventually got caught, and they almost got away with it. But they uh, they are in jail for I think seven to eight years each. Um, in a I think uh, Carl Force, who, who pled guilty and you know was pretty remorseful about it, is in a, a low security prison. And then Sean Bridges tried to tried to run. Uh, apparently, and uh, they caught him, and uh, he got a few extra years for that, I think. And so, and then there were 343 people associated with the site who were arrested. Wow. So the Ulbricht story, in the end, the lesson I draw from that is that Bitcoin spent on a good white collar lawyer is Bitcoin well spent. Uh, I, 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 um, <laughs> but then I would draw that. Uh, no, I, I think that. The, the lesson I think I got from the whole book is, is, is it is a story of um, of ambition. Every single person in the story is ambitious, and um, and some of them go too far. You know, Ross wanted to be remembered as someone who overturned the drug rules and showed that being that legalizing drugs would make the world a safer, better place. Carl Force wanted to be a hero who brought down the Dread Pirate Roberts. You know, the the list goes on, and I and I think that you know. We live in an era where we we are eulogized online for the things that we do in our careers, and um, and they wanted to be kind of remembered as the ones who 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 did what they did, and some of them went too far. All right, well, Nick Bilton, uh, uh, American Kingpin, the epic hunt for the criminal mastermind behind the Silk Road, out in paperback today. So as people listen to this, if they want to get the paperback, which I recommend, it's great. Uh, it's available today, and I, I, I appreciate your kind of rounding out the themes there, because uh, I agree with you. Uh, and thanks for joining us. Do uh, um, you have any events coming up that we should know about? Uh, no, I just... Um, uh you know, bouncing around here and there. Sometimes things come up, but uh, uh, but yeah, I think uh, if you have any interest in in crime, murder mysteries, any of that stuff, uh, I think you know you'll enjoy this. You'll enjoy this story. It's a truly fascinating. I've been doing this for for almost two decades, and it's the craziest thing I've craziest story I've ever worked on. All right. Well, thank you very much, Nick. This has been episode 219 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, be sure to send us suggestions for guest interviewees, uh, uh, and if they're half as good as Nick Bilton, we'll send you a highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Uh, send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. We've got uh, Kirsten Nielsen, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, coming up uh, in our interviews, uh, so we we'll hope you'll tune in for that and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Thanks. Thanks.